Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. We are going to continue our study this morning on good friends. How many are thankful for the discipleship project? We are all disciples of Jesus Christ, and we are commanded to go and make disciples. And so I'm thankful for some time that we can set aside to to talk about the things that are going to help us and aid us into being effective disciples for Jesus Christ. The theme of the series is simply this, to build the healthy relationship we need in our lives. We must be a good friend, and we must choose good friends. The first lesson, we talked about loyal friends. Last week, we talked about friends that are closer than a brother. And this week, we're going to talk about faithful wounds. Now, in the onset, that doesn't seem like that would be in succession when we're talking about friends. Talk about loyal friends. We talk about friends being closer than a brother. But now we're talking about faithful wounds. How can that be friendly? How can a wound be friendly? Well, hopefully by the time we get done this morning, we'll understand it a little bit better. I'm thankful for the series in particular that we're going through. I'm thankful because friendship is important. Friendship is certainly important in living for God. So some people might ask the question, what does friendship and relationship with others have to do with discipleship? The simple answer is this. Friends can literally make you or friends can literally break you when it comes for living for God. The famous saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future is a true saying because the company that you keep The people that you allow into your life, they can help you and aid you in successfully living for God, or they can be a detriment to you, and they can be antagonistic in your walk with God. And so, faithful wounds simply means that sometimes good friends are not always going to agree with you, but good friends will always be honest with you. And so Proverbs 27 and 5, we'll take our text this morning. We'll read Proverbs 27 and 5 through 9. The Bible says, open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. As a bird that wandereth from her nest, so is a man that wandereth from his place. 
in verse 9, ointment and perfume rejoice the heart, so doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Now the King James makes that sound so much more eloquent. It makes it sound so much more flourishing as we read it. But what he is saying is that hearty counsel sometimes can be open rebuke. Peter and Paul are probably arguably two of the most influential leaders in the New Testament church. Peter being among the 12 originally chosen disciples and the one that was entrusted with the kings to the kingdom. While Paul is remembered as the apostle to the Gentiles and the writer of a significant portion of the New Testament scripture, one could easily, easily, one could easily believe that because they were considered friends, because they were considered to be fellow laborers, that there would be constant, unanimous agreement. But that was not necessarily the case with these two men. There would, in fact, be conflict. There would be contention. There would be disagreement. And yes, there would be confrontation. Peter was notably the most prominent apostle among the 12. He was outspoken, he was passionate, and he was decisive. And so it's no wonder that he was the first to be chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. He was the first, however, to jump out of the boat in the attempt to walk on the water. He was the first to answer correctly when Jesus questioned, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am in Matthew 16 and 13? And he was recognized as the spokesperson on the day of Pentecost, explaining the phenomenon of the outpouring of the Spirit. He preached the resurrected lordship of Jesus, thus opening the door of salvation to everyone who would respond in faith. Initially, Paul, however, was introduced as Saul as he was considered an enemy of the church. After all, he did commit large numbers of faithful believers to prison. Just because they believed in Jesus Christ, just because they lived for him, Paul was admonished and sanctioned to commit them to doom. He was the one who stood while men and possibly even women laid their garments at his feet at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr in our New Testament text. He not only condoned their actions, but he sanctioned it. He allowed it to happen. His orders from chief Pharisees were to travel to Damascus and commit even more to an impending doom in Acts chapter 9. Yet, while he was breathing out his threats and while he was purposing in his heart to eradicate anyone who would stand in opposition to his mission, a bright light appeared on that road and arrested his plight. The same God that Paul believed that he was in league with The same God that Paul believed that he was in work with, the same God that he believed that he was in service with, confronted him, he corrected him, he convicted him, and he subsequently transformed him. Saul was sent to a man by the name of Ananias who would lay his hands upon him and pray for him. 
He, he, he would receive his sight. He would be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and he would be baptized in water in Jesus' name. He returned to Jerusalem a changed man, totally transformed by the power of God. However, Paul had been an enemy to, the, to every Jew believer, especially those who were in leadership. And so even after Paul's conversion, the followers of Christ were skeptical of Paul. They were skeptical of his motives and understandably cautious about accepting him into their confidence. And so as you can see, a total reformation, a total change, a total change of conviction does not always make instant reconciliation. Now it does with God. The Bible says that if we confess our sins that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But sometimes it's a little bit different with man. And so it doesn't always introduce an instant reconciliation. It doesn't always result in rapid friendships. But it was Barnabas who was convinced of Saul's genuine change. And he brought Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem and he shared his testimony of conversion. Although Saul, who was also known as Paul, was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, it was Peter who had been given the keys to the kingdom. It was also Peter who was divinely appointed to preach unto the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. And so through the vision of unclean animals, God offered to Peter it became at that moment very apparent how difficult it was for him then and how difficult it would be for him later to overcome some cultural prejudices and minister to the Gentiles. Now, I'm laying a foundation here. We're going somewhere. Later, Paul would launch into full-time ministry. He would begin his ministry journeys throughout Asia Minor, and he would, he would be in full-time ministry to the Gentiles. But the cultural differences that Peter faced in the beginning would bring contention between these two men. It would bring conflict, it would bring confrontation, and it would result in harsh criticism. And so nobody, under the sound of my voice, I think it's safe to say, enjoys criticism. I certainly don't go around looking for it. It doesn't make me feel good. <laughs> Nobody likes criticism. No, no one likes to be criticized. No one, no one likes for their flaws to be revealed. And so although it's not an enjoyable experience, can somebody smile at me? We're going to receive it at least once in our lives, so we better get ready. We may not like it. It may not feel good. But hear me, receiving criticism from a friend is much more preferred than hearing it from someone who has little regard for your feelings. And so hopefully we all have friends in our lives that offer criticism out of love and genuine desire to make us not feel better, but to make us better. You see, we all have room for improvement. Every single one of us, even the one holding the mic today, well, probably me more than anyone, has room 
for improvement. And so whether we're receiving criticism or whether we're the one giving it, it should always be given with grace. It isn't easy to receive it. It's not fun. It's not fun, even if it comes from a friend. And so sometimes the criticism, when it's introduced, can create tension. It can create a tense moment when someone takes their liberty to offer a critique. Giving or receiving criticism will always test the depth of a relationship. A strained or a broken relationship can certainly result from that criticism, and it can take some time to process what has been said and really and truly evaluate the validity of the uninvited assessment. I'm certain, I'll say it again, that we've all been on the receiving end of criticism. It probably stung a little bit. It probably hurt. I would go as far to say as it, it probably wasn't met with a warm and fuzzy feeling. It might not even, even be met with a warm and fuzzy response. I would even go a step further to say it probably ruined our day probably took some wind out of our sails. It probably let some air out of our tires. But hear me, constructive criticism can be good. Now, I'm not talking about, let's just get this out of the way. I'm not talking about insulting people. I'm not talking about, you know, being harsh with people just for the sake of being harsh. We're not talking about that, but we're talking about constructive criticism. Properly receiving and properly processing criticism can prove to be a good thing in our lives because one, it can grow us. And two, it can strengthen the friendship of the one who has offered the criticism. After that initial reaction of that stinging criticism in our heart, we can truly ask ourselves a question and we should truly evaluate what has been said. And we should ask the question, is it true? Am I really guilty? And was it warranted? And if we find ourselves in agreement with that appraisal, then we can introduce a change in our behavior. This is an occasion to grow as a person and to embrace the friend who gave us the opportunity for growth. Now, I know it's quiet, because this goes so far upstream of our normal way of thinking. That goes so against the grain of our modern culture of, of thinking. We, we live in a millennial generation, and I don't mean any disrespect to any millennials here. I'm on the very cusp of being that, but I'm the X generation, so I don't, I don't have to say I'm a millennial. That's got some ne negative connotations to it, and and. and, and it probably does because millennials grew up with parents that told them, you can be anything you want to be, you can do anything you want to do, and you're not going to face any opposition for that. If you just put it in your mind to do it, you can be it. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't tell our children that you need to be everything you can be. We need to tell them that they can be everything that they can be for God. We need to tell them that they can be everything that God wants them to be. But to tell them that they're not going to face any opposition in life would be telling them a lie, and that would be setting them up for failure. And so 
And so this whole thing of criticism and taking it and understanding it and bringing it into our lives, it, it really just goes against our modern way of thinking. To embrace the person who has just essentially slapped me upside the head? Not hardly. To embrace the person who has cut me or hurt me? I don't think so. But hear me today, if we are going to grow, and we must grow, if we are going to be what we must be for God, we are going to eventually have to embrace something that everyone in this building has already had to embrace, and that's the truth. We're going to have to embrace the truth. The proverb uh, 27 and 6, the writer says, wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. You see, empty words and vain flattery, they're deceitful. And so they, they at first, they may be pleasant to hear. They, they, they may make me feel good about myself. They may build me up and lift me up. But if they are insincere and if they are from false affections, if they are offered with impure motives, the sting of duplicity is much more biting and much more bitter in the end than what it would have been if we would just face the truth in the first place. I mean, let's just face it. We all desire affirmation. We all, in fact, want affirmation. We, we like compliments. The person that says, I don't like compliments. They're telling you an untruth. And my daddy always said, if you'll lie about one thing, you probably lie about something else. And so we all like compliments. We all, we all want to be affirmed. And in and of themselves, that's not an all-out terrible thing. There's places and there's times for all of that. And sometimes those things are warranted. But the thing of the, the, thing of the crux of the matter is we, under, we need to understand the truth. We need to get to the bottom of everything that is going on in our lives, and we need to understand the truth. We don't, we don't need to hear uh, all these flattering words and, and all of these um, things that could build us up because if they're hollow and impure and come from impure motives, then they won't last anyway. It's just going to be empty. The Bible says one who is full loads honey from the honeycomb, but to the hungry, even what is bitter Taste sweet. And so if we just receive compliment after compliment, you're so great, you're doing so good, everything's going great in your life, those things can just become an overabundance. And by the time they're over with, we can receive other compliments. They don't mean anything. It's just empty. We get inflated on our own ego, and, and we're just walking through life thinking everything's all right when it's not really okay. And so an injury received from an honest critique may be hurtful in the moment, but the lasting effect can be healing because it's taken me somewhere. Often the greatest injury when we receive a critique, the bottom line is to our pride. And typically, that's where problems find their genesis, in pride. And so pride must be stamped out Pride must be walked away from. Pride must be gotten rid of. Can I get an amen? That pride, that prideful ego is what sent Satan careening toward the earth. That's what took him out. I'm prideful. 
I want to exalt myself above God. I don't have any imperfections. I'm perfect. I'm pure. And that cast him out. You see, when a true friend sees through the falseness of our front and exposes our flaws, it's at that point in time that we must choose how we are going to respond to that friend's correction. It's our choice how we're going to respond. It's our choice how we're going to take that and use it when they provide the correction. And see, if we reject the friend's honesty, it may cause us to reciprocate in a negative way, and that's what causes the wedges. That's what drives the divides in the relationship, and that can be an ultimate detriment to our own personal growth. I deceive myself if I adopt the mindset that I am perfect and I contribute to my own hurt if I am unable to accept the critique of a friend. And so true friends, true friends have our best interest at heart. True friends are looking out for our best interests. And while criticism may cause us to question the loyalty of a friend, it's helpful to understand that pure motives from a true friend's criticism isn't to destroy us, but it is to add value to our lives. True friendship sometimes is confrontational. True friendship sometimes has some iron that rubs up against iron and the sparks begin to fly. But hear me, if we'll allow those things to happen in our lives, something good can come out of it. Because as we're sharpened and as we sharpen others, we can come together and we can be what God has called us to be for the hour that we're in. And so true friendship, true friendship can sometimes result in confrontation. There's another friendship that we're all accustomed to, and sometimes it can cause confrontation, and that friendship is preaching. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't do anything like it for you like it does for me, but, but God chose preaching. He chose preaching in 1 Corinthians 1 and 21. Paul says that he chose preaching to save them that believe. He chose preaching to save them that want to do better, to want to move forward, who want to work and, 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 and grow in God. He chose preaching for those people. And sometimes preaching steps on our toes. Sometimes preaching gets right up where we're living. And sometimes it gets pretty uncomfortable. By nature, preaching is confrontational. But preaching that reveals the flaws that I need to get rid of and take care of and be dealt with in my life. Well, hear me, friends. That's true friendship. When those things are pointed out and when those things are revealed, I have the opportunity to then take an inventory of myself and in my life. And I've got the choice. I can either brush that off, I can either push that away, or I can pull that into my life and let God make something of me. Preachers are your friends. Preachers, when they preach the word, they may come with sharp two-edged swords of correction, and that may expose a flaw, but it invites a change. We're not preaching to strike in anger or to bring about punishment, but we are truly speaking words of correction from our heart, from the heart of God, not only to a congregation, but to ourselves. Preaching 
touches the preacher, the word touches the man that's saying it, just like the man that's hearing it. And so we're not striking in anger, but those corrections that come from a heart of love, they come with passion, but they come to see positive change in those that will hear. The word of God, this word, read, studied, understood, and proclaimed. This word is effective for discernment of our own thoughts and our own intentions, and it is powerful and profitable for correction and instruction. It speaks to the critical needs of our lives. And so I want to hear the word. I want to hear the unadulterated word of God. I want to hear the infallible word of God. I don't want something that's been twisted and turned and made into something else, but I want the pure word of God preached unto me. I don't want itching ears. I don't want to heap to myself people that will make me feel good about myself. You see, Paul told Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And so I don't want to heap unto myself preachers or people who will flatter me with vain words and hollow untruths. What we need more in this world today is not more itching ears, but what we need more in this world today is wise counsel. Don't tell me what I want to hear, but please tell me what I need to hear and help me to understand and hold it truths in my heart and in my life. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to hear. Let this pulpit never be fettered. It's been said before and I'm just echoing it. Don't ever let there be a chain on this, but let it be the unadulterated, the the pure word of God preached to every heart and to every mind and help us to understand that God is not trying to rebuke us just for the sake of rebuking us, but he is trying to grow. He is trying to, he's trying to plant something in us. He's trying to make something of us. So it, it might be difficult it might be difficult, but we must, hear me, we must seek wise counsel. We need it behind the desk, and we need it in our friends. We need it from a distance, and we need it up close. But hear me now, when we seek, when we ask for the advice... When we ask for the counsel, we've got to be ready to receive it, even if it's not something that we want to hear. You see, if we value honesty, we must likewise be honest with ourselves to hear counsel that is contrary to our own thinking. The writer says, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. We open up to receive honest counsel. We are granting liberty for disagreement. 
I'll say that again. When we open up for wise counsel, we are granting the liberty for disagreement. We're granting the liberty for that person not to agree. Now, I'm not talking about doctrine. I don't think I need to preface everything I'm saying. We, we agree that there's one God and there's one Father of all. We, we believe that we must be baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. We must repent of our sins. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about life issues. We're not going to agree about everything. We're not always going to see eye to eye. But we must understand that we must have the unity of the Spirit. So if we truly want the advice, we must be prepared to hear it. But if we've already made the decision about what we're going to do, there's no sense in even asking for their counsel. See, if we have a heart to hear, regardless of the position that our friend or our counselor may take, we may find better alternatives in our decision makes them proxy us and, and gain new respect for the views of others. You see, the world we live in today, people really and truly, they just want yes people around them. Some powerful leaders surround themselves with those who will just only agree with everything that they say that will support them in every decision that they make. And this usually results in a one-sided decision and can lead to disastrous results. These types of people, these national leaders and even people in their own lives become dictators and despots. And dictators and despots at some point are ousted. You look at the lineage, you look at the, you look, they may reign for a while, but at some point their lives are going to run aground because people around them are going to just oust them and put them out of power. And so when two people agree, William Wrigley said, one of them is unnecessary. William Wrigley was an industrialist who founded Wrigley Chewing Gum. His quote explains the contradiction of always seeking the counsel of a person who will always agree with you. Specifically, you may feel good that you can count on a particular person to validate the wisdom of your own thoughts. It may even give you a certain comfort that you are taking the right action on a critical decision. The truth is, however, that if you have a person who always agrees with you, she or he is unnecessary. Some might even argue that this person has become little more than a yes woman or a yes man to you. Their argument has much validity. Look at it this way. If you've surrounded yourself with a team of yes people, if you've surrounded yourself with friends who are yes people, who always agree with you, you might as well listen to yourself and stop asking others for their input. The truth is you really don't value their opinion What you value is an echo. Yes, people may be okay for some situations putting putting out an ongoing dangerous fire, but they are not good for business, and I would tell you that they are not good for your friends, and they are not good for your life. William Wrigley had it right. And so how much better is it to be surrounded with friends who can debate, who can confront, and who can counsel rather than living in a one-sided, myopic world where no one dares to disagree. The wounds of our friends may well be the greatest influence for our good and our greatest opportunity 
for success. Let me say it again. The wounds of our friends, although it goes against everything that we've ever been taught in our lives, the wounds of our friends may well be the greatest influence for good. It may well be the greatest opportunity for our success Paul said, I press toward the mark. And so that's what we are doing here today. We are pressing toward a mark. And if something is said that goes against the grain of my thinking, if something that is said across this desk touches me very close in my life, I've got to take that in. I've got to take inventory of it. And I've got to make a change and move and grow in God. So I'm moving a lot quicker than I thought I would. I guess I got excited. (laughs) In time, in time, the, the explosion of Gentiles into the church in the New Testament caused, caused major conflicts among the Jewish believers. It caused major rifts and caused major contentions with the elders in the Jerusalem church. You see, a group of believers who were part of the Pharisees expected the Gentiles to embrace the law, including the covenant of circumcision, dietary restrictions, and other observances. As Paul traveled and preached throughout Asia Minor and beyond. He focused on Jesus and the gospel message. He affirmed, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul understood because of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, there was no need to follow the rituals of Moses in the Jewish traditions. However, After 14 years, he returned to Jerusalem so he could meet with the elders of the church and consult with them about the message that he preached. Peter, John, James, the brother of Jesus, and other elders of the church in Jerusalem stood united with Paul concerning the exclusion of the requirement for the Gentiles to be circumcised before accepted into the church. After the council in Jerusalem, it was concluded that Gentiles should only be required to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood in Acts 15. The conflict between Peter and Paul surfaced and appeared afterward when Peter visited Antioch in Galatia in Asia Minor. On his arrival, Peter shared meals, and he freely associated with the Gentile believers, making no distinction between them and the Jews. It was only when the other group of Jews who segregated themselves from Gentiles arrived that a rift appeared. Peter withdrew himself from associating with those Gentiles to avoid the criticism From the Jewish group. But Paul, Paul identified this action as hypocritical and he called Peter out publicly. 
And so by all of this, we can ascertain a few things. Though Peter and Paul were fellow laborers in the gospel, they did not always see eye to eye. True friendship is not, is not without some disagreement. And even though Peter was often the man of the hour, he was still subject to mistakes in making them. Paul understood the importance of giving heartfelt, passionate, and hearty counsel and correction. And so probably one of the most, the most important things that we must understand in all of this is that when the contention arose and when Paul called Peter out for something that he was guilty of, now just a few days before he was, he was eating pork and hanging out and everything was fine. But when these Stoics shows up, they need to be circumcised. He withdrew himself. Now this could have caused a, a very major problem in the furtherance of the kingdom. Because these Gentiles could have looked at this and said, wait a minute. You're not who you say you are. But a faithful friend... A faithful friend administered a faithful wound and he called him out. But what we got to understand in all of this is that Peter could have become bitter. Peter could have become angry. And Peter could have become incensed with rage. He could have withdrawn himself and said, you know what? I don't need you, you don't need me, you go your way, I'll go mine, you do your thing for God, and I'll do my thing for God. He could have done that. He could have adopted a personal vendetta against Paul, but he didn't. He didn't do that. You see, later in a later epistle that Peter is writing to some of the same people, some of the same people who were there, they saw the contention. They understood what was going on. They understood that Paul called him out publicly. They understood that he had administered a wound to him, but some of the same people Peter is writing a letter to them and, and, and Peter does not take on a vendetta. Peter does not take on some sort of, 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 of anger or anything of the sort. In fact, Peter did not even have to say what he said in his letter. But Peter praises Paul. Peter is exhorting and he is warning them and he is proclaiming regarding the sure return of the Lord and he mentions Paul's writings to reiterate his point and he calls Paul our beloved brother Paul. He said even as our beloved brother Paul also to according to the wisdom 
given unto him hath written unto you. Peter makes mention of the same epistle that Paul had wrote that wrote in Galatians chapter 2 that contained his own rebuke. And so I've come to tell somebody today, that's the kind of friend I need and that's the kind of friend that I want to be. And so we can become bitter. We can become angry. We can become incensed when that friend offers a wound or we can pull it into our lives and say, yeah, I made a mistake. I did something I shouldn't have done. Let me make, let me make this right. Let me, let me, let me take an inventory of my life and let me move forward. Peter moved forward and he was able to minister to those people, but he wasn't too proud to say, yeah, I made a mistake and Paul called me out, but I'm, I'm, I'm taking his hand and we're going to walk together and tell you that the Lord is surely going Going to return. Stand, stand with me. And so we can become bitter or we can become better. We can choose wise counsel or we can choose the sweet words of hollow affirmation. We can choose insincere compliments or we can embrace the truth and grow in God. And I'm here today to tell you that we can do it, and we can do it by choosing good friends. Would you lift your hands right now? Would you just pray and ask the Lord to touch your heart and your mind? Lord, I'm thankful for faithful friends. God, I'm thankful for friends that that will see through, God, the things that I am trying to front. I'm thankful for friends who will get close to me, Lord, and, and, and let me know, God, what I'm doing so that I can correct it. I'm thankful, Lord, for your friendship. I'm thankful, God, that you saw fit to be my friend, Lord, to tell me, God, to get up and to move forward and to do your will and to do your work. I praise you. I magnify you, Lord, and I thank you for your word. And I ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, to seal it in every heart and every mind. In Jesus' name. Now clap your hands to the Lord. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.